This is the Living Out Podcast, and I'm your host, Darren Steele. I help people use their difference to make a difference in the world with queer thought leadership, social justice from an LGBTQ perspective, and personal growth. What is pride? Or more specifically, what is Stonewall? Stonewall is just a name. Stonewall is a historical event in time, and we are celebrating this year the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. But Stonewall happened in New York, so it's geographically specific. As we're going to learn in this episode, pride and celebrating events like Stonewall are very much coastal dependent in the United States. Because how people are out and how people celebrate their diversity can be quite different in the middle of the country, in much smaller areas or rural locations that don't have such a large number of people in an urban metropolis that may be more accepting, forgiving, or enough variety of people and a spectrum of individuality and sexuality and genders that you can feel like you belong. And what about world pride that's happening in New York in conjunction with Stonewall 50 and the commercialization of pride and the corporate sponsorship of all things Stonewall and organizations that are accepting money from corporations that have a long history of being very prejudiced against LGBTQ people or have sponsored events like the FIFA World Cup last year in Russia, an entirely homophobic and prejudiced country. What about the treatment of the police? And and so much more. So that's what we're going to talk about in this very special edition of a living out leadership issue discussing the myth of Stonewall and its influence on our mainstream society and the history of LGBTQ people. And we're going to be talking with two guests on the show today. The first one I've had on the podcast before, Jeffrey Jovanone. Sometimes I have such a trouble saying that. Jeffrey, (laughs) I'm so sorry. Jeffrey is an activist, scholar, a writer, educator, researcher from Buffalo, New York. He holds a PhD in American studies. He specializes in gender and LGBTQ studies. He's the creator of the blog Queer History for the People and a columnist for my publication Think Queerly on Medium, which is how I first met Jeffrey probably a year and a half ago. He's a member of the Buffalo Niagara LGBTQ History Project, a founding member of Body Liberated Buffalo, a volunteer-run activist and advocacy group that works for body liberation in Western New York. And he's also doing research for a book. And I wish him the best of luck with that and look forward to when he has a timeline for its publication. So he first appeared on the Living Out podcast in the show titled Deconstructing the Ideal Gay Male Body, the episode 77. Now we'll also be speaking with Ken Galt, who I'm calling a gay elder. I met Ken 
Early last summer, he was part of uh, the five-month coaching group that I took part in, uh, led by Raymond Rigoglioso, Gay Men of Wisdom. And I've spoken a lot about Raymond's book, Gay Men and the New Way Forward, and his idea that there are 14 distinct gay male gifts and what that all means. So Ken's bio is that for over 50 years, he's been an active participant, an observer, a raconteur in the gay communities of Montreal, Baltimore, and New York. In the, he witnessed the turmoil of the 60s and Stonewall, the excesses of the 70s, the harsh realities of the 80s, the miracles of the 90s, and this millennium, an, a new beginning, or is it business as usual? political power or personal growth for LGBTQ people. So Gunkle Ken, Gay Uncle Ken, is going to explain it all for us from his perspective of having lived it, having experienced this history. He also publishes on my publication, Think Queerly. Uh, he pens the On This Day series where he looks back in a very memoiric way at lives lost to HIV AIDS and memories specific to the time or something lovely that happened or even something problematic about an individual just as a way of looking back and seeing moments in time and what they meant and how they affected not only him but the society in which he lived and which he experienced. So this is a really rich episode that I feel really grateful to know these two wonderful people and that they took almost two hours out of their time to share their inset, insights and the layers that we uncover. It's going to be a very interesting ride and I do hope you enjoy it. So without any further ado, let's just get into the discussion. All right. Well, Jeff, Ken, welcome to the podcast. Great to be back. Thank you. So this is going to be fun. And I'd like to pass the mic, so to speak, over to uh, Jeffrey. And we'll have you frame the beginning of this uh, discussion. And then we're going to see where we go down this. Maybe I should call upon Dorothy at this moment, this <laughs> winding road. But you recently published an article on uh, my publication on Medium, Think Queerly, and it's your column, Talk Queerly, titled, Stonewall Was Not the Beginning of the Gay Rights Movement. And this is Stonewall 50 mm -hmm. this year, the really big celebration. It's happening at the same time as World Pride in New York City. It's a big to do, but why don't you fill us in on that big but? <laughs> yes, fill us in on that big but. <laughs> so it's something that's often repeated, I think, uh, especially during Pride Month, but, but we've seen it really ramp up because of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, is that the Stonewall in riots of 1969, or you know, if we want to call them um, an uprising, a rebellion, were the beginning of the gay rights movement that, that then had a global um, impact and, and global reach. Um, and that's actually not true. It's more complicated than that. And I, I think that um, simplistic understanding of um, 
gay history actually um, does a disservice to um, LGBTQ people and also people's general understanding of um, who we are. And so a, a movement starts actually decades um, before Stonewall. Um, one of the things that, that we see um, before the, the Stonewall period was what was referred to as the homophile movement. Um, and um, one of the first significant um, homophile organizations was the Mattachian Society, um, founded in 1950, in Los Angeles by Harry Hay. And so the homophile movement was really a movement of white, middle-class gays and lesbians who were advocating um, for civil rights, were pointing out the the fact that um, gays and lesbians did not have um, the same constitutional rights as their heterosexual counterparts, did not um, enjoy the benefits of first-class um, American citizenship. And so that that movement starts out relatively conservatively, but then right as the 50s and 60s are progressing, um, there is splits between right, older and younger homophile activists. And you know, getting into the mid to late 60s, um, they become more militant and, and radical in terms of um, the, the pickets and protests that they're doing. Um, so as I said, primarily middle-class activists, one of the, the other things that we see happening um, in more working-class or blue-collar cities, for example, Buffalo, New York, where I'm from, um, is the development of working-class bar cultures that um, formed spaces of community, networks, um, functioned as spaces of resistance to um, homophobia. And this was documented in the case of Buffalo um, by two pioneering lesbian historians, Elizabeth Leposki Kennedy and Madeline Davis. And they wrote an oral history of um, Buffalo's working class lesbian community called um, Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold. And one of the things that they argue in that book is that these bar communities um, were not just social communities, they were actually political spaces, and that they allowed um, the ideas of gay liberation to spread and disseminate in a way that could culminate um, in a mass movement when in the late 1960s, early 1970s, we see this um, shift in tone and tempo of um, the broader already existing um, gay rights movement. So really, Stonewall is more of a turning point than it really is a beginning or a point of origin. Um, and if right, we distill everything down to Stonewall, we're excluding that longer history. Uh, and I think we're also um, excluding the impact of other um, social movements on the gay rights movement. So um, anti-Vietnam War movement, um, the women's movement, um, black civil rights movement. Um, so I think it's important that, that we have a, a complex, holistic um, picture of what Stonewall was and its significance and, and positioning it. Um, in the larger context of LGBTQ history. 
Well, I'm going to bring a question to Ken at this point, and and the interesting challenge will be uh, in this episode, um, how we sort of step through history and in that this is a podcast about Stonewall, we're actually not going to talk about really the event itself. Um, so speaking, Ken, speaking to sort of what Jeff has said, how he has framed uh, the historical background, maybe you could start with, you know, when you were born and framing your age as a um a queer gay elder in our history and your experience um, up until that time of Stonewall and, and whether or not you had any awareness of or uh, direct interaction or involvement with any of the previous uh, gay and lesbian organizations before Stonewall actually transpired. Well, I was born in 1951 um, and uh, grew up in Baltimore, born in Montreal, grew up in Baltimore. I think my mother knew that I was gay. Um, she certainly, you know, she taught me how to knit and she taught me how to cook and she taught me how to drive a Jeep. And this was all before I was 12. Um, and she died when I was 12. So around that time, um, and I'm unique in, in other ways as well that I, you know, my, my family background is, you know, mental health is not the long suit of my family. So that was troubling. And I'm not sure that, you know, gay boys in general or people in general don't grow up in, in somewhat uh, cantankerous, if not abusive households. But it never occurred to me that I was, I knew that I was different, but it never occurred to me that I was wrong. Um, I was just different. Um, and I recall reading uh, in, in the paper, like in 10th grade, there was, oh, somebody's, I think it was Barbara Giddings or some sociologist had some news out that gay people are not statistically different from other people. It's like being left-handed or right-handed. And I just, you know, how this came across my, you know, my desk at, in 10th grade, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but putting that also in the context of what was going on in, in the world at that time, I was just doing some notes the other day. Um, I was around when JFK was shot um, and, uh, and the Vietnam War. Um, in seventh grade, they didn't, our history teacher, I went to a Quaker school and our history teacher immolated himself in front of the Pentagon um, in, you know, in uh, solidarity with the Buddhist monks in Vietnam. So it was a real thing um, going on, the, the protests and the, and the unrest and uh, uh, the political situation in, in the United States was very divisive and, uh, and the black movement. Um, and we were part of that. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I just heard about Bayard Rustin, um, who organized the March on Washington for MLK, you know, I mean, it's insane how close we were. And going back to Harry Hay, part of the communist movement, we were part of that, which is, you know, why we're singled out and hated for being communist. But we've been part of those movements um, all along the way. And then to sort of use, come out on our own, I think we're very in instrumental in those. Um, and then started taking care of ourselves in that being rejected from that and, and women being rejected from the women's or lesbians being, you know, rejected from the women's movement because it's too divisive. 
and we learn from them and they learn from us subsequently. There is so much rich history there. I, I've heard a couple times on Eric Marcus's podcast, Making Gay History, um, where he's interviewing people from the 50s and 60s, this association with, you know, like the communist movement in the United States. I think I want to do is like, Jeff, let me bring you in here. If there's any specific questions you want to ask Ken to speak to, again, just up to Stonewall. So Ken, can you talk about, I mean, if we're thinking about that, um, time period being gay is socially stigmatized it's considered a mental illness um it's a sin there's laws that are criminalizing homosexuality uh how did you feel about yourself at that time do you have um memories about like when were you first able to find or um experience gay community and what was that like for you well, my father was going out with a woman from New York, so I met uh, through her, um, you know, my uncles, my, my gay uncles living in Manhattan, and, um, and that was like 10th or 11th grade, and that was just life-changing. I mean, they, you know, they said, oh, there's a new club downtown, you've got to go to it, um, it's called the Stonewall. Um, and um, they, of course, were Upper East Side, you know, folks, and they wouldn't go below 34th Street. Um, cause that's the way it was back in those days, but he, they sent me off to the village and off to the West side to do one or two things. Um, so I had an idea, um, even before that, it was like, Oh, I, I picked up a guy on a, on the train to New York and we went to Julius's. Um, and Oh my God, how life changing that was. This was a gay bar. Not only did it have its name on the door, which was revolutionary, it had picture windows so that you could see out. And more importantly, people could see in who's in there. And that was just outrageous um, at the time. I don't remember any gay bar that had more, any more than a red light over the door on it. Certainly didn't have any. And this was kind of right around the corner from Stonewall. So I met, you know, interesting people. And these were not, these seemed to be like solid people. You know, there were briefcases and there were men, you know, <laughs> wearing suits and ties after work and, and, you know, shorts and, and uh, polo shirts, you know, over the weekend. And it was like jeans and T-shirts. I mean, these were, you know, stand-up guys having a good time, um, passing, you know, d doing the afternoon things. I mean, it was just incredible. That, that the, and I was in 10th grade absorbing all this stuff. Um, so, yeah, and I thought, well, that's, that, I want that. Um, and I finally, and I was looking for it in, in Baltimore, uh, a, a little bit, didn't find it so much sound, found some, um, some people my age to hang around with and some others that you know, were probably less interesting. Um, I was kind of dating a guy who this older guy, he was in med school. Um, and, and he subscribed to the advocate. So I was exposed to the advocate, you know, in, in, in high school. Um, and I guess it's the, what I learned about myself. I, uh, I just had no shame about it. Um, you know, say, so, well, that's your opinion kind of a thing. I just want to jump in here real quick, Ken, because I mean, I'm listening to this and I'm blown away on the level that at this time, in the 60s, you were already having sex in grade 10, learning about the advocate, uh, kind of being out, not having any shame. I didn't come out until after 
before I was almost 19 years old after grade 13 in Ontario, and that was 1984. You know, different times, different places, different environments, but like this is a really interesting life that you've had and this early launching into, you know, your gay world, your experience, um, and the way you've described it as never having felt like anything was wrong with you or that you were different. You just were gay. Oh, I knew I was different. I mean, you know, but I just didn't assign, as we were talking before, I, I knew that I had um, uh, characteristics. Some of them people called feminine. Some of them uh, they called masculine. It, I mean, it didn't occur to me to assign it a name. It's just, you know, this is what I do. This is what I and looking back, there was no question that I was a gay boy. I mean, I had, you know, if I'd had a mirror or a microphone to look up, I'd say, this is a gay boy. And I kind of knew that. And, and I guess everybody around me knew that, too. I guess, you know, all my parents' friends assumed, you know, that I was gay or whatever. But it just didn't occur to me that it was something, you know, to, to, uh, to worry about. I think, and maybe you may want to cut this out. I don't know how I'm going to go. But I had dealt with shame in another in another fashion. My my family, my father was an alcoholic, and I had more shame about that than I ever had about being gay. So that on the one hand, that was kind of tragic. On the other hand, you know, once you I guess dealt with shame as a as a thing, it's like well, there's no shame anywhere. If you've wiped out one piece of shame, you've kind of wiped it all out. Um, so that in, in itself was another, I guess, lucky piece. Um, yeah, I, um, I was quite tempted. I wanted to take my boyfriend to my senior prom. Um, he was wonderful guy and he was, and he was a line man for the Baltimore gas and electric company. I couldn't take him to a prep school. I just couldn't do that to him. You know, uh, and 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 my friends, you know, being and I knew that they would, you know, ridicule him, not probably because he was, you know, gay and gorgeous, but, you know, because he was a quiet guy and a blue collar guy. I mean, he was. So that was my reason not to do that. That's interesting that there was a class distinction as opposed to it was it was the primary reason other than being uh, too afraid of, of who you were as a gay person mm-hmm. or even maybe your safety. Um and maybe that was another you know, it, kind it, of snobbery, you know, uh, yeah. uh, that th- it was class over, uh, <laughs> over sexuality. Um, but f- I did, um, well, he and I went on a little vacation, a honeymoon, and met some friends of mine from New York. We went up to Atlantic City to see the Jewel Box Review, and there were like, you know, 10 guys in, in, in jackets and ties and, you know, Peter English in full drag um, to see the Jewel Box Review. And that was uh, in August. And they were telling me about Stonewall and what had happened earlier in the, in the summer. I have a question for Jeff going back to the article that we started with. And uh, if you want to interject something beforehand, but I let me go back to what you were talking about with um, Harry Hay and the Mattachine Society. And I'll quote what you wrote in the article and quoting Harry Hay, a labor activist and founding member of the early homophile organization, the Mattachine Society, saw gays not as isolated individuals suffering from a condition in need of a cure, but as an oppressed minority group similar to that of blacks or Jews. Gays, in Hay's view, were not the problem. Society was. And 
you know, here we are getting this story from Ken and, you know, all these other issues that are showing up. I thought maybe at this point, um, Jeff, you may have some further comments or, or lines of questioning that we can go down. Yeah, well, um, that's one of the ideologies that gets us to a mass movement, right? Um, that you have to have a sense of yourself as a unique um, type of person that's a member of a community, right? Not an isolated individual who's suffering in silence so that you can band together with other people that are like you in order to create change. And um, Harry Hay is one of the the first people that's really starting to um, articulate this political ideology of what it means to be gay in contrast to right, a, a medical model or um, a religious model that's focusing on disease and, and um, illness and, and sin. So um, on that note, Ken, I would be interested in hearing more about, so it sounds like your earliest experiences with community were in the bar scene um, do you have any particularly vivid um, memories or stories of going to the Julius or going to other bars in New York City that you learned about at that time? Oh, let's see. I, I learned that you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting people in the world. Um, and one of the things about, I guess, uh, being in a gay uh, community for all of its secrecy. There seemed to be an unseen boundary uh, there and, and uh, sort of entree into uh, a, a world that was awesome. I mean, I met, you know, actors and, and artists. And I mean, I, I, I would get drunk with Jasper Johns. I mean, who does this? <laughs> you know, it's like, and other, you know, gay people that were really um, high, you know, really highly you know, noted in their, in their fields, uh, in, certainly in, in other areas. Um, and interesting, interesting people. And that's the thing that got me most. Um, that they were doing, you know, a lot of things. Um, and happy, well, of course, I mean, I was in high school and college, so, I mean, I was a young, happy guy. I mean, I had, <laughs> this is, I was still, you know, life was a really big adventure, and, and what's going on out there, and, you know, a kid from Baltimore that, you know, grew up on a farm, and, you know, suddenly it's like seeing the world, uh, it, it was, and then the world is a wonderful place. Um, and adventures in, in meeting people and, and running around. A lot of it, I guess, kids do anyhow. But this happened to be my, you know, exploration into the big wide world outside of, uh, outside of you know, Baltimore, Baltimore County. Um, and it was just walking in and seeing people happy. I think that was uh, the thing that I remember most. So we also know at this time period... Um, that, yes, gay bars exist, they're functioning as spaces of community, but there are also spaces that are being criminalized. Um, you know, in, in New York State, in particular, when 
prohibition ends in 1933, then in, in 1934, we see the creation of the state liquor authority um, to manage right, the, the sale, the distribution um, of alcohol within New York State. And this is one way that the gay bars were criminalized. The, the state liquor authority is interpreting the presence of um, gay people in a bar, especially if they're, you know, doing something like um, dancing or touching each other or, or, or drinking um, as disorderly, right? And so they could use this label of a disorderly um, premises to shut down um, the gay bars, and right? So they would conduct um, raids and then label the premises in a certain way. So then the bar had to close because the owners um, would lose their liquor licenses. Uh, so I'm wondering if, were you ever um, present at a bar where, when there was a raid, um, were you harassed by, by the police in, in bars on the street? Mm, I was not, I was, th- I was thrown out of a bar in Baltimore for dancing too close to the guy, my, my, my boyfriend. Um, yeah. Uh, for that, um, I was picked up in a park, um, for sitting in a car and, you know, necking with a guy. Uh, we just, you know, lights came on, you know, uh, get out of here, get out of here. I was stopped for, you know, seeing who I was, uh, driving, in Baltimore, like three o'clock in the morning. I don't think that, I don't know how unusual that was, but it, uh, it occurred. I also, and I don't know whether this, this is probably relevant, irrelevant. <laughs> I remember, oh my God, I shouldn't tell this. Um, I was picked up in a bathroom, um, once it was very strange and I must've been like ninth grade or so, um, in a department store. And, um, he took me to his apartment and I knew for some reason, you know, it's like he wasn't, you know, all, all that in a bag of chips. But anyhow, um, and for whatever reason, I just thought, well, you know, I'm going to let him make the first move. And that's what I did. And looking back, it's like, you know, at the end of this little encounter, nothing happened. And I saw him looking into the mirror and shrugging his shoulders. So, oh, my God, what the hell ha- could have happened here? He dropped me back at the uh, at the you know department store and said, "Never do this again." I it didn't. I mean, like twenty, thirty years later, I realized it came to me that oh my god, this was a setup, and I could have been, you know, filmed and jailed for this. Um, but you know, being stupid and naive, but I'm just also having that setup. I'm going to let this guy make the first move. So I guess something about me was adult enough to protect myself against this. You know. Uh, so I guess there's a lot of I'm, I, part of me is like I'm living the life of Brian. It's like I'm kind of on the <laughs> on the outskirts of the main attraction, but, you know, sort of plugging along at things. That was as, as I think as close to mm, danger as I got. And when you say that you think it was a setup, what do you mean by that? Well, that I was taken from, you know, this place to uh, to what looked like, you know, somebody's apartment and um, and nothing happened. And the way in and it may not be true, look, looking into the mirror and shrugging and, you know, uh, 
in some way saying, well, we're not going to get this kid, might as well end it. You know, uh, this, this part, this piece of entrapment isn't working, I guess, is the, is that I saw there. Um, I was going to be entrapped, but I wasn't going to make the first move. So there was no, uh, you know, reason to arrest me. Right. Okay. Got it. Um, for all that. Um, the other downside of that, and something that people don't mention, um, is that I got gonorrhea in tenth grade. But again, I went to the doctor. How did you manage that? And at what you would have been sixteen. I was. Do you really want? Okay, well, it's the guy that I picked up on the train, and um, we went to his place. And this was a guy, you know, like he was a uh, an associate. Well, I didn't mean how did you get gonorrhea, honey. I mean, how did you deal with it when you went to the well, doctor okay. at sixteen? Or I'll tell you, I went to, the, I called the doctor, and and this was somebody that I'd seen like you know once to get this you know the school health card signed off on. So I don't know, and I said, uh, I said, I think I've got you know gonorrhea. Well, what makes you think so? Well, I had this pain and discharge. So I went in and the doctor says, well, what sort of contact, sexual contact do you use? I said, homosexual. Oh, and, um, and I can't remember at what point he said, he said, do you want to see a psychiatrist? I said, for penicillin? <laughs> it's... It, <laughs> That's the kind of outrageous kid I was. And I said, no. I said, well, who, you know, who have you been? I said, a, a guy from New York and I'll take care of it. Um, I, and, and this was it. I mean, and that was kind of my response. It's like, why, do, why, why would I need a psychiatrist for penicillin? I mean, it, it didn't occur to me. The only other person that asked if I were seeing a psychiatrist was my aunt several years later. I said, uh, came out to her and said, well, are you seeing a psychiatrist? I, psychiatrist? I said, yes, I am. She seemed relieved. I said, but I want to be a better homosexual. I, I, I'm not going to stop this. I want to do it better. Which, you know, blew her right out. (laughs) Uh, The way you frame this is fascinating because often we hear stories like, like pre Stonewall of individuals that were, you know, they, they, they tried to keep the peace or they tried to present, you know, dressed up either in women's clothes for women or men's clothes for men or not holding hands or no displays of affection. And yet you talk as if you were in some form of isolated bubble and it was just who you were, your, how you were brought up, your sort of, uh, your personal characteristics and makeup and view of the world that you were just like, this is me. And you were kind of living a life almost as if somebody seeing uh, positive images of themselves in the media were available to you at that time, which they weren't. When I saw the ones that were there, I guess, um, and, you know, just kind of cursorily, like I found that, you know, article in, in the in the paper indicating that, you know, homosexuals were statistically normal um, as compared to every, everybody else. Um, that kind of thing that when it came across my, my uh, eyes. But the other piece of that is, I guess, having to do with my own you know, personal history, I had already rejected other people's opinion of me you know, long ago um, uh, for all that. Um, being in, and my father was abusive. Um, you know, I'm not saying that you know, things were lovely at home, but I, you know, he was... Uh, an alcoholic, and I had to reject his opinion of just about everything if I wanted to survive. Um, and that was kind of survival. I, I suppose I learned those skills elsewhere, 
and simply applied them to this part of my life. It's like, well, you know, that's, that's your opinion. Um, and I've heard it before. And, uh, and when I left home, I said, first of all, you're apologizing and then I'm leaving. I mean, my father had, you know, just, he was who he was. He was very, um, you know, he's a sick man. And I guess, and that may have been, you know, something, uh, uh, saving grace that he taught, <laughs> that I learned to rely on myself, um, and my own opinions and my own abilities long before I, you know, could rely on anyone else. And that's interesting. I mean, that's what makes us all unique in history and, and the, the roles in which we can play and the way in which we can contribute. And I'm thinking at, at this point, this might be the good um, sort of place to actually move into the time around uh, the Stonewall riots, um, however much or however little we actually talk about it. Um, and again, to go back to uh, your article, Jeffrey, quoting the danger of the Stonewall myth, however, lies in the fact that it has become not only one story LGBTQ people tell about themselves, but the story we tell about ourselves. Stonewall is not just a narrative, but a meta-narrative, a totalizing account regarded as a universal truth that excludes other narrative threads and possibilities. Maybe take us into sort of this section, this period of history, why that's problematic. And then, Ken, let's find out a little bit about your experience of that time. I'm not sure if you were quite involved or you were more on the periphery, but Jeff, pick it up from here. So Ken's oral history that he's just given um, is an example that is deconstructing the idea that Stonewall is the beginning of everything, right? Because part of um, the story or the myth that we tell about Stonewall, um, and again, right, we're not saying that um, what what happened wasn't um, factual or significant, even though there's a lot of differing um, eyewitness accounts about how the riots actually went down, but um, it has this mythic status in the sense that it's an important story that we tell about ourselves and, um, and who we are. But one of the stories that we tell about Stonewall is that it allowed people to be out and have pride in their identity. And before that, I mean, um, being gay was defined by this secrecy and, and shame. It doesn't seem like that's, Ken, that, that's what you're experience was it seems like you were um out and had a positive sense or at least as positive of a sense um of who you were that you could have that time that you didn't necessarily um need the stonewall story to um to to have that um right so uh, i'm thinking a couple different things here so um if stonewall is the only story that we tell, right? We um, limit the complexity of people's unique individual um, experiences. And we're only telling part of the story if it's all focused on Stonewall. Um, What was happening in terms of organizing in other places in the country, people who didn't 
live in these large cosmopolitan cities, right? So at the time, and then I think that that also has implications in the present because in our present moment, there's still this focus on Stonewall and what happened and what does LGBTQ organizing and activism look like in these large coastal cities. And we're not providing people with models for what does that look like um, if you live in, you know, quote unquote, flyover country, right? The the part of the United States that um, exists between the coast. If you don't live in a big coastal cosmopolitan city, if you live in a rural community, um, are we actually giving people the idea that you can't be fully yourself fully actualized as an LGBTQ person if you don't live in a certain area of the country. So I I think it's important that we need to um, tell those other stories, fill in the narrative um, outside of and around Stonewall. And one of the things that I uncovered when I, I started looking at gay history in Buffalo um, in my city um, was that there was this bar that was called the Tiki and it was owned by a guy named Jim Garrow who had come to Buffalo from Florida um, and he was kind of a shady character but um, this bar was popular and so he's a he's a popular fixture in the Buffalo gay community of the 1960s And this starts to be a period um, where gay bars in Buffalo, but I think in New York State in general, um, are being very heavily targeted, both because of the state liquor authority, um, but also in 1959, um, Nelson Rockefeller becomes governor of New York State. And one of the things that he campaigns on was that he's going to clean up corruption in state police departments. So it creates this situation um, whereby when corruption is rooted out of police departments, it's more difficult for police to take um, payoffs from the gay bar owners. So um, they therefore have to target and, and close the bars um, and in, in Buffalo in 1967, there's also a race riot, um, which intensifies police scrutiny on um, minority communities, both the Black community and the gay community. So when the liquor license um, comes up for renewal for the Tiki Bar, it's denied. And the state liquor authority actually cites the fact that Jim Garrow has a homosexual arrest record. So they don't want to give him this, this liquor license. Um, and so gay people virtually have no spaces of community in the city. And that's really the primary thing that's prompting them to um, organize and start a gay liberation movement in Buffalo. Um, and the, the first organization that they form is called the Mattachine Society of the Niagara Frontier. Um, not direct information from, or direct inspiration, excuse me, from um, Stonewall, right? So it's not like everything starts at Stonewall and it um, 
spreads out from there, there's parallel gay liberation work um, going on throughout the country. And Buffalo is just one example of that. And as you're, yeah, as you're speaking, I'm just thinking as well, it's not just being a bar owner that's not going to allow you to do your job. Um, you could not be a doctor or a lawyer because you were not of good moral character. You couldn't get into medical school. With it. I mean, if that were, you know, I mean, and, you know, my uncle was very directed, you know, saying that you can't be a, you know, you can't, you can't even get into law school if you're, if you're queer. Um, <clears throat> so that was, I mean, all part of that as well. Um, and when you got busted, uh, and a friend of mine was, you know, busted in uh, Arlington in Washington, D.C., and his name appeared in the paper, and there was no question that his resignation would be on the table um, at the provost's office the following day. And you didn't lose your job. You lost your means of employment. Because you're, you know, this is like your permanent record. And you're not going to, you know, oh, you can't just apply to another college for the, no, you can't just go to another law firm. No, you can't just go to another, you can't. You can no longer practice your, you know, your, your job at that point. So it was a really big deal. And people were getting sick of it. Um, as people went into those, uh, uh, you know, um, um, areas, it's like they were, you know, being a little more demanding. One of the things about Stonewall, though, I think, was not just that it was, you know, uh, drag queens and Puerto Ricans, but it was the neighborhood that was getting sick of it. You know, the neighborhoods were saying, these are our neighbors. These are people, you know, these are people that has helped us out through the whole, you know, through the last decade of crap in New York City. And because um, there was a lot of crap in New York City going on in, in there as well. That th- these are our neighbors. Stop harassing them. I mean, so that we won the neighborhoods at that point, um, which was a change. Ken, could you talk about um, some of your memories that you have about going to the Stonewall Inn? Oh, I went there like two or three times and I actually got a card from there because it was a membership thing. Um, and, uh, and I didn't like it particularly. I mean, again, it was, you know, uh, <laughs> drag queens and, and Puerto Ricans, not the people that I generally want to hang out with, A. B, I love to dance. I hate loud music and flashing lights. So it's just not, you know, not a place. I mean, it was fun. It was not a place that I, you know, uh, would say, ooh, this is great, you know, like some, any other place. It was small. It was okay. It was kind of cozy um, and fun. It was loud, smoky, and, you know, too much drinking, but it's like every other gay bar. So, uh, so there's that part of that. But also, as I say, I went around the corner to, you know, to Julius's, which was well lit. And then the, the Stonewall was upstairs. So you really, you know, it was kind of on the street, but not at street level. Um, so that you didn't really see people, you know coming and going you saw them coming and going from the from the up and down stairs but you didn't really see who was there uh so it was a nice place i it wasn't interesting to me um which is guys a little bit shocking i suppose oh yeah stonewall been there done that not interesting but um you know that you will always see i guess on the forefront you'll see um <laughs> drag queens leading the way 
um, armed with uh, sarcasm and, and uh, cigarettes. Um, no, <laughs> I beg your pardon. I shouldn't say any of these things <laughs> politically incorrect, but, but they're, you know, they're in the beginning, sisters of perpetual indulgence. Um, and people that I know, these were the people that were really out, you know, doing things and they were on the forefront. God bless them. Um, and a lot of middle class, you know, people, white middle class men like myself are saying, ooh, I don't want to hang around with them. Well, in part, that's true. Um, Got to admire them, though. Um, and a lot of people wouldn't go, you know, uh, out to those places because of those people for for different kinds of reasons. But I guess we did broaden the the marketability of, um, you know, places to go when you're gay. But it was still, in some sense, risky. Uh, uh, it, you were going to, mm, you wouldn't necessarily be, you know, arrested, but you wouldn't necessarily get promoted either. Um, so there's that whole, you know, closet, the closet within uh, commerce and business and, and schools of, uh, you know, hey, well, yeah, we know he's gay, but, you know, as long as he behaves himself, uh, that's going to happen, but you know he's he's okay here. But you know, make a make a move. And sorry, we got to let you go because other people, you know, need your job. And even in working, um, when you're working, if you're not married, I've, this happened. I said oh, several years later, my, you know, I knew people that were going through law school and getting into law firms and such. And gosh, you know, Jack, why don't you stay late? Because I got to take the kids to baseball. You know. Oh, why don't you do this work? Cause whatever, I got to take the kids here or there. Well, you don't have any, you know, you don't have a family. You can work over the weekend. Um, that kind of, you know, uh, things that go on and, um, some, there's, you know, there's something just a little off about him. He's not married. So we really can't, you know, it's a, even couple dating. It's like, you just don't fit into the, Unless you have all those trappings, um, you're still not going to fit in. So there was a different level of a, a more subtle kinds of discrimination that, that, that went on outside that. Um, getting back to Stonewall, it was a it, it was uh, a, a big thing. But again, it wasn't I don't think it was like, you know, it wasn't didn't come to Malcolm Forbes attention for for sure. Um, you know, and certainly but and it would have been threatening to the, you know, to the closeted upper upper class uh, if you will upper middle classes that was very threatening to them i think when we look back at what we've talked about so far you know there's no denying that uh stonewall happened as a culmination of a lot of different um events and tensions and intersections of class and race and gender identity and, you know, right place, right time. And and well, certainly not the start of, you know, the gay rights movement. It was everything conspiring to a point in time where literally the, the volcano blows its top. And it certainly became a kind of an impact or, um, I guess the, the the center of the bullseye that that people could sort of you know go out from you know concentric circle after concentric circle. Uh, so, where were you at the time of the riots, Ken? And what were your impressions, um, perhaps following that, wherever you were? You know, I didn't really know about it. 
um, until a couple months later. As I say, I was in, you know, Baltimore, um, and I would go up to New York often and or stay in contact with other people. But um, I heard about it in, in August of that year when I ran into, you know, some friends. Oh, yeah, didn't you hear about it? And, I mean, and, oh, my gosh, people were uh, leaving their, va- canceling their vacations to stay uh, in town for this or coming back from and, and you know, uh, take things <laughs> into hand. And to hear told, they were pulling, I mean, these these drag queens were pulling parking meters out of the ground and throwing up the cops. I don't know whether that's apocryphal or not, but you know, that's the stories that we're told picking parking meters, remember parking out of the ground and throwing up the cops. I mean, this was, you know, this was unheard of. Uh, And it may be, as you're speaking, kind of a generational thing because The the Harry Hay gang um, or the that era, you know, were not having an influence on on us. And maybe it was just, you know, kids just empowering themselves because that, you know, kind of that age in the 20s. And that's what you do. Um, didn't have anything else to I mean, anyone hmm, historically to rely on. So they just kind of burst out and, and did these things, as was everybody. I mean, you know, black students and and. Uh, communists and well probably not so many communists but, but you would have the demonstrations at the chicago convention the year earlier um with you know national guard coming out because people were protesting so it's kind of a, a skill that we had acquired um sort of separated from the earlier generation so it's kind of a new thing uh for all that I guess the baby boomers were you know growing up and asserting themselves or beginning to um, so I'd learned about it, um, in August, as I say, I met, ran into some, met some friends in Atlantic city and they were saying, Oh my God, didn't you hear and what, and this and that. And, but I didn't hear, then I went off to back to Montreal for university. And I really didn't hear much about it till, you know, for, a, for a couple of years. So it wasn't a, a really big thing on, you know, on my radar, uh, until really I, you know, for several years, maybe 70, certainly 75 when I moved to New York and um, got involved with that. I don't recall there being much of pride activity in, in Montreal um, at that time. I remember going down for the dances at Columbia when they started. Uh, well, it's interesting that, you know, it, it, it doesn't sound like at least in your uh, sphere of influence or news that you were reading that it was reaching you at that time. And that certainly goes to um, what we're talking about here, like this myth of Stonewall, that it was certainly an event. It was certainly riotous. Um, you know, the, the big question, and I'll ask Jeff to come in on this one, is, you know, in my uh, last or second last podcast i talk about the participation of uniform police at toronto pride in 2019 and why black lives matters was correct about um four years ago in 2016 when they halted the parade and they demanded that uniformed police no longer be allowed to participate in future parades and festivals that stonewall with all of the things that got people pissed and to this point where they finally would lose it was again because of police force as one of the defining reasons for people to like, you know, really lose their shit and decide enough is enough. And 
possibly, I imagine that, you know, here's this place. And I, you said something earlier, Ken, about uh, you remember people smiling, you know, a place where you could go and finally feel like you could be free, even if it was managed by the mafia, even if it was really a kind of a safe closet. But as long as somebody didn't open that door and see you in there, no one would know. And as long as bribes were taken and no one knew about it, then there was this unspoken of safe space until finally that one little spark catches the dry tinder wood and it takes off. Maybe add into this here for me, Jeff. I mean, interestingly, again, going um, back to Ken's specific story, right? And how um, it aligns or doesn't align with the story that we tell um, about Stonewall, right? One of the um, big things that that gay activists have said um, about Stonewall is not necessarily that it was significant um, because it was a riot. There had been other riots that that took place, um, but that different organizations, political organizations. Um, came out of it but it seems like Ken for you it didn't necessarily as a singular event um create this big shift in your your consciousness or at least not um immediately so like maybe you felt that ripple later yeah it would definitely be be later um for me and I'm not sure, I, and I don't think, uh, Darren, as you were saying, that uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the we didn't break the back of the mafia on those things because they certainly um, maintained their uh, grasp, if not legal, illegally, then legally. And it, I, it wasn't until you know Harvey Milk broke uh, the beer distribution in uh, in San Francisco. Um, in the late seventies that that became, you know, then that's how we got political power. There was, you know, taking on the beer distributors. Somebody was bringing, what's the beer from Denver? Coors. Yeah. He got Coors beer out of, out of San Francisco bars altogether. Um, (laughs) which was something, what, what, what? Yeah. And that kind of really affected how business was done. Wait a minute. These people are controlling our market. These people have cloud and they're organizing our marketplace. How dare they? And that's when, you know, and that's when gay politicians got listened to. You want power? You control, you know, you start getting where people, you know, where people spend their money. So it wasn't necessarily the mafia that was, you know, controlling these things. And it wasn't, um, you know, other places and the, you know, the bars up and down the uh, patch bars and and leather bars that had a built in, you know, consumer base. Um, And they got all they attracted, you know, their communities, but they were still being run by scandalous characters, unscrupulous people. I mean, you go out to Fire Island and that damn uh, John White is so special about um, building the pavilion. Well, he blackmailed the previous owners who were three gay guys, one of whom was a teacher in Long Island, said, you will never work if you don't sell me this bar. I mean, that's the kind of, (laughs) you know, this was going down. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all lollipops at that point. And people that were upright standing citizens doing business, they were put out of business. But, you know, I guess that's just business. Um, 
by other <laughs> less uh, less scandalous people, I suppose. And um, yeah, so I, I when it didn't change that much, and and they kept touting this guy, John, what was his name, Joe Murphy, the bouncer at you know at Stonewalls, being such a great, great hero. Well, he was a great hero if if you were the guy that if you're the guy that tipped him regularly and he told you that the cops were coming that night, then he was your hero. Otherwise he was just, you know, he was a tool for the, the owners and the police. But I digress. What was the question? (laughs) (laughs) No, we were just, I was getting some more clarification about beer, but you know, Jeff, um, you've written a lot about, uh, the commercialization and the commodification of uh, pride. And this might be a point for us to move closer to sort of present day and sort of just to thread this or give some more background to this next part of the conversation. <clears throat> you know, post Stonewall, I mean, this is fascinating hearing that, you know, that an effect really maybe wasn't in, in your life, Ken, felt or, or understood really till about maybe five years after and perhaps different groups or different things started to organize and and then harvey milk in san francisco and then we move into you know all the activism of 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 the plague years and um then after that sort of the fight for equal rights and you know the the right to marry that happened in in different countries and then finally united states what are how are these moments in history um, attached to Stonewall, if at all? And how do we understand this? And how do we understand um, this connection of making money off the backs of LGBTQ people? Yeah, Darren, it's um, interesting because you you brought up um, uniformed police presence at Pride, right? Um, and thinking about the difference between now and then, if you, and I, I think a lot of people, you know, probably don't know this. Um, yes, Stonewall um, was a response to police harassment. But then if we look at that, that first um, Christopher Street Liberation Day, um June of 1970, right, which is the precursor to um, modern day pride, Um, that demonstration, and then the parallel demonstrations that um, gay organizations um, staged throughout um, the country. And if we look at, um, you know, oral histories from people who participated in that, talking about that experience, um, they talk about how the New York Police Department, who is very much entrenched with the mafia who who own the bars, um, and the mafia is angry that the gay community is starting to organize and create their own spaces um, because then they're losing um, money. The New York Police Department tells them, well, you know, if people from the mafia um, try to hurt you when you're staging this demonstration, we're not really going to do anything about it. Or... Um, other people have talked about during that first march, um, the police like literally on the streets of of New York City, turning their backs on um, the the gay community because they didn't want anything 
um, to do with that versus now when we sometimes even have uniformed um, police officers in certain pride parades, um, you know, marching as um, a contingent and that really being part of the um, commercialization and mainstreaming of the community in general, um, but also pride celebrations in particular, you know, and you brought up the, the HIV AIDS crisis. And I wonder if um, a part of that, and I wonder what, you know, Ken um, thinks about this because of the, the AIDS crisis and all of the, the stigma that's associated um, with that. Then when we get into um, the 90s, especially the mid 90s, when there starts to be effective treatment, um, is there is there this you know desire um, to want to be mainstream, to want to be accepted, to want to um, alleviate that stigma that's coinciding with the fact that companies and corporations um, start to realize because the community is more visible that they can make a lot of money by. Um, specifically marketing to the LGBTQ community. Right. Well, on one of those points, I remember as people were moving into Chelsea, um, and thank God I moved, I bought an apartment there in 1979. I, it's why I could retire. Um, but in at that time, um, then there was gay bashing, which is a little too polite for me. Uh, along 8th Avenue because, you know, there's community changes and it was a terrible neighborhood and there was, a, you know, the, uh, the public housing along the way and 8th Avenue, et cetera, et cetera. And I went into the 6th Precinct and I said, They're, you know, your guys are, we're getting beaten up by baseball bats out here. And their response was, well, get your own damn baseball bats. Leave us alone. And that's from the desk sergeant. So um, there's that part of it. <laughs> and then, um, and I think in terms of the epidemic years, a couple things, well, many things happened. One of which, again, we got support from the outside community saying, you, know, you can't do this. This is not how you treat people. Um, when um, I heard from, you know, Roger McFarland going to the UJA um, for funding for uh, GMHC. And there was, I mean, he, this were I, you, you talked to the UJA, you were talking to significant players in the world. And half of them were saying, we can't do this. We can't do this. And the other side said, look, we will not discuss the theology of this. We will discuss it on the merits of people of patience. And that was the end of that discussion. And that's when you got people, you know, joining in to, uh, to support us. Um, and when, um, you know, uh, I could look him up. I, I wrote about Nathan, who got uh, Nathan Kolodner, who, because he was a director at Andre Emmerich, had entree to people with significant amount of money. Um, and was the first person to raise a million dollars in a single event for GMHC. That was revolutionary. Um, but then, but it gave other people the opportunity of supporting us and seeing us as people. Um, and on the AIDS epidemic as well, one of the, a couple, 
things that I want to talk about. One is the blood supply, because um, it's just come up recently whether or not we can give blood. And I remember when, when uh, it was announced through the CDC that blood supply may be at risk. And within weeks, they lost 10 to 15% of their donation pool. And they begged people. The mayor went on, the, government, uh, the governor went on. Everybody was saying, please give blood. You cannot get AIDS from giving blood. You cannot get AIDS from giving blood. And if you've ever given blood, you know damn sure you can't get AIDS. What you don't know is that 10% of the donation pool self-selected out. And there wasn't a Twitter account. There was no email at that time. People saw, oh, I might be putting the blood supply at risk. I will not do that, said every individual for miles around. I mean, that's who we are. Um, and I can be very proud of that. The other responses, and I've sort of thought about this more recently, the two responses that we as communities had um, are we sang and we danced, or we sang and we played. The choral movement, and I'm, you know, caught talking, talking about it as a movement, but in uh, 82, I went out to the gay games or the gay Olympic games as they were until two weeks before that. And they had eight, I think they had all eight of the 10 gay men's choruses in the country uh, for that event. And I don't know how many there are now, like dozens and dozens and dozens. So, but that's going into the community and to be able to bring people together to process feelings through song and support each other. And, uh, and the other thing, to, the, the, I call it the, the sports movement. I mean, there was, you know, one volleyball team somewhere and was, you know, <laughs> and then suddenly there's volleyball teams, there's runners that came out of the front runner and, and, uh, Pat, Patricia Nell and, and those things, but everybody was starting. And how do you deal with, you know, uh, with, getting to people together to support each other and process and, and help each other in, in ways that don't involve going to the hospital, but working out aggression in, in healthy ways, um, working out feelings in healthy ways. I mean, we did this. Nobody put up a sign that said, let's do this because it's good for us. We, we did it because we knew it was inherently what we needed to do to get through this. Well, with, with, you know, HIV hitting the community so hard and, and what you've described and, and the various challenges and positives, positives that came out of it, there was sort of an act of legitimizing at some point in time the humanity of the individual regardless of whether they were called gay or straight or anything else, whether it be a drug dealer or a trans person. And it could have been a riotous kind of period when ACT UP sprung into action. And it could have been picking up parking meters and throwing it into cop cars like what you described, Ken. But instead, ACT UP made a particular choice. I, I think there were some very, you know, riotous times, but they chose a particular approach. And I, I wonder whether there was a direct influence from, from Stonewall or not, or whether this was just all of these individuals um, who had enough experience of the history of 
the gay liberation, the communists, uh, the hippie movement, the Vietnam War, and pulled all of those ideas together to try and fight this disease with a particular mindset that had to really push forward the humanity aspect and the empathy aspect. Yeah, right. And so uh, to kind of bring the observations that you're making back to the to the larger conversation about um, Stonewall, right? So if we're, we're thinking about the gay rights or the, the LGBTQ rights movement um, as a whole, there's never these single points of um, origin for movements or aspects of the movements or um, turning points, right? Because you're, you're talking about uh, with ACT UP, founded in March of um, 1987, you know, five or six years into the, the epidemic. Um, yeah, it's founded at the time because there's a lot of anger due to the way that people are being treated and in particular the, um, the government lack of non-response. But Darren, as you point out, they're also influenced by their predecessors who were veterans of Stonewall, veterans of gay liberation, um, and other movements as well. Right. So again, anti-Vietnam war movement, um, Black civil rights movement, um, drawing from notions of um, sex positivity from the women's liberation movement. Um, you know, Michael Callan and, and Richard Dworkin articulating the very first concept of safer sex. Um, and it's actually uh, civil rights activists who come in and train the New York City chapter of act up um, how to engage in civil disobedience and um, direct action protest, right? So, so uh, again, another example of there's never these single points of origin. It's always a complex story. And we do ourselves, I think, a disservice both within the community and also right how we're seen in the mainstream um, if we reduce our story um, down in a really simplistic way. And it also, you know, has me thinking, um, I think we could raise the question, do people who are considered minorities, right, do, is our story considered more simplistic and less complex? And then those that are in the majority, do they get to have the benefit of a more complex history. And if that's the case, I think we need to actively work against that. Say that last piece again, would you? Um, sure. If I can remember, um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, is it the case that, um, those of us that are members of minority groups, because our history is often not considered a part of the mainstream narrative in this case, the, the mainstream narrative of, um, American history, even though I would, would argue that um, the story of LGBTQ people and our movement and our, our struggle is in many ways a very inherently um, American story, um, it gets reduced to this simplistic 
narrative, right? It often gets reduced to, uh, in an American history class, right, the only queer thing that you might talk about is the Stonewall and riots. Um, But do people that are in the majority get to have the benefit of having this complex history because their story is the mainstream story, the mainstream narrative. It gets defined in terms of um, what's important. Well, we get reduced. I think one of the things about being a minority is that we are qualitatively different than every other minority. Um, Every, well, I will say it, (laughs) most every African-American man I know has grown up in an African-American home. Same with Muslims. They typically grow up in Muslim households. We do not. We are by our nature in that regard, uh, multicultural, unicultural, polycultural, because we have to figure out what's going on in the world to figure out what our place is in it, probably by the time we're five. And, um, and I don't know, has any, I've never known any gay man that has not at one point said to himself, you know, I knew I was different. And um, and that makes it and that makes us uh, very different in, in terms of uh, the context in, in which we live in our in our culture in, in our culture, and hopefully and I and I believe that's to our to, ultimately it will be a, a a boon to us when we figure out what the meaningfulness of of that is. I remember you told me this some time ago, Ken, we were having a discussion and I thought this was really a keen insight, you know, that it's not like I grew up with a gay father and a lesbian mother who groomed me on my homosexuality. We come out, pun intended, figuring ourselves out, finding ourselves and finding our way in the world, even when we might not have the resources to do so, depending on geographical location. Jeff was citing, you know, are you, do you have access to like a coastal larger city where a larger pride might exist? Or are you living in the boondocks in the middle of the United States or somewhere in northern Alberta? Or did you come out when you did, Ken, or I did, when there was no internet, when there was no email when there was no Twitter, when, when there was no representation or out-representation of another gay person, and, and you get that common frame from older uh, LGBT people, it's like, I thought I was the only one. Until you get to that point, and this leads, and you know, we don't, we're not going to have this discussion, but where we get this concept of the chosen family, and you know, the the show Pose that's on TV right now, the the first episode just came out last week. Um, this is the big theme: chosen family. That we grow up in families that might not get us and might not be able to support our needs for the uniqueness, the difference that makes us who we are. And then when we are able, hopefully, of our own accord to go out into the world to find those other individuals that can wholly support us with compassion and understanding and empathy, 
which is sometimes some of the challenges we face within our own cultures, this sometimes defensiveness or this greater hurt that we can lay upon. You know, one gay man can sometimes be so hard on, so mean-spirited to another gay man, and that's usually just a level of or a lack of self-awareness of one's ability to function in society and to own and fully understand any damage that may have been caused through gay shame and how, if unresolved, that creates, like in anyone, gay or not, unresolved shame, uh, unresolved personal histories like abuse or sexual abuse, uh, if not dealt with, are going to have a negative impact for a long period of time and may always be a trigger even with um, or even having been dealt with. Oh, I was going to say, I want to um, try and tie together a lot of um, different threads of what we've been talking about. Um, you know, uh, Ken, what you said that I think is so significant and an important insight that doesn't get emphasized as much as it should um, is I think maybe like one of the defining aspects of the queer experience, if we could say something that there is like a queer experience is, um, and if, you know, going back to Harry Hay, right? If we take the perspective that we're not these isolated individuals, but we're actually a unique people that has a history, that has a culture, we often don't grow up immersed in that culture um, like other minority groups. Um, we have to find that and seek that out in um, some way. And it's often not um, a linear or easy experience for everyone, right? So like, um, Darren, you mentioned how we come out and we might expect to be embraced, but because of the damage that's inflicted on people and the stigma and um, the shame, we might experience a negative reaction from people that we might expect to embrace us. Um, but as part of, you know, people having access, LGBTQ people having access to our history, to our, our culture, um, we're, we're certainly at a moment where um, there's more access, more representation than ever before. Um, Darren mentioned Pose. Um, there's also the Netflix reboot of Tales of the City that just came out. And I actually don't don't quote me on this, but I think I'm correct in saying that the phrase chosen family actually comes from um, Armistead Maupin's serial um, Tales from the City that ran in the San Francisco Chronicle and then later was published as a series of novels and then is the basis of... Um, this show that just came out um, and thinking about tying this back to the, the history of pride. Um, right. So we have this increased representation, but that increase in representation is um, often connected to the increasingly um, corporate nature of modern pride. And then, right. What do, what do we do with, do with that? Because um, there's, an upside 
and a downside. And um, is it realistic that, you know, we could do something like um, completely dismantle corporate pride and build something else? Or is it um, creating an alternative to that that provides critique, um, that holds corporate pride celebrations and events um, accountable? And kind of wondering what you um, think about that as a person that was around in the time period um, where the earliest pride marches and, and demonstrations are taking place versus where we're at now. In my generation, being gay is, we've defined ourselves as who we're not. We're not criminals. We're not sinners. We're not mentally ill. Um, um, and we're not any of those things. But again, there's no, well, what's left? Who are we uh, for all that? Um, and another piece of that is, uh, when I'm growing up, your degree of, your, your degree of success as a homosexual is directly related to your ability to hide that fact. Um, and everybody wants to be, hang around successful people and to be successful, I have to hide half of my life. And you'll find other people that agree with you. Yep. And that's kind of, so there's a level of institutionalized and internalized homophobia um, that I, I believe still exists. Uh, you, you know, it's like, OK, if you're if your experience, if you come out of the closet and you run into Roy Cohn, you're going to think that's what a gay man looks like. And that's the way that's the norm. That's the standard. Um, th- and that hopefully is not the case. Um, and, and looking back at families, you know, finding, uh, discovering and, and claiming your families. Well, the other side of that with the AIDS epidemic is that you couldn't hide. Uh, and that was kind of insightful for most people. So it gave our families the opportunity to respond to us willy nilly. I mean, the hard, cold truth, whatever that was. You had a relationship with your parents and your brothers and your sisters at that time, and it couldn't be hidden. Many of those people came out and said, they helped us. They said, you can't treat my family like this. You can't treat my brother like this. Um, And there was a tremendous amount of of help and encouragement and understanding for for what was going on came, came out of that. And um, thinking of a one of my imaginings of, of of the world as well, it's like, well, you know, there's ten percent of us presumably in every time and every place. How does that help? Well, you know, my son's gay, and um, and I I he he's a wonderful guy. So maybe I can have access to a world. Not I'm not saying this very well. Um, the insights that your son has about the rest of the world might allow you to trust another, another human being. You know what? My son's lover is Muslim. I need to know more about Muslims now. It personalizes, you know, everything. It, and it gives people uh, insights or access to things that would never occur to them to have insights and access to otherwise. Um, and in terms of the world as well, I, going back to, you know, Harry Hay in those days, 
in the United States was isolated. You couldn't bring in any printed material that had anything to do with this. It would be stopped at the border. And if you went down to the, you know, down to the post office and said, well, you wouldn't let me have my book. Why not? Uh, well, because now you're under arrest for having, you know, because <laughs> now you're under arrest for having tried to get this book into the country with this patently illegal for you to have. Um, so there's a level of isolation in this country. So, and I think there's a lot historic, just in terms of context, there's more in the, in the, in the larger world on that. But I guess the couple things that to deal with is still um, internalized homophobia and, the, um, and how we deal with our families and relationships but um, among ourselves and and among our genetic families our our given families and and what we're meant to do with that so to follow up on that um you make the really excellent point that um throughout a lot of our history we've defined ourselves by what we are not not what we are um so who do you think we are then, um, both in general and also at this present moment? Well, I guess we're always in flux. Um, I think we are, uh, in, in, in larger terms, um, helpers, if you will. We're, we exist, I think, outside families to help families be families. To integrate one family with another, um, we have empathy. We can listen. We can understand masculine and feminine. We can, we can understand young people and old people, typically. If we don't understand them, we can certainly listen to them and, and have, an, have some empathy for them and their relationships. Um, to, to play that outsider role as a trusted outsider um, is hugely beneficial. And I'll say something that you know, I want to have erased soon, um, <laughs> and that is take away all the crap and all the illegalities and all the terrible things that you, heard, you hear about the church. There's a reason why there's so many gay men in the priesthood. We are priests. We are of, I think we're of a, you know, that priestly class of people that, that does those things, that listens to confession, that can give forgiveness, can understand people in their relationships with other people and help them do that. That's why we're so many therapists um, and other kinds of people. And even, even I believe, and I can't really document this, but I believe even if we are doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs, we bring that sensibility to those roles and tasks that makes them better. Um, and also in the church, you know, we, uh, there's things about culture. Well, that kind of goes into uh, uh, Ray Rigliotto's book that I don't want to go in too deeply, but that kind of thing, who we are as, as people um, and how how interesting that can be um, when you look at how, you know, uh, other, and you can't relate. I mean, two spirit people are, it just doesn't translate into the word homosexual or gay or anything like that. And that's one of the things that I, I don't like is the, um, 
is the whole vocabulary that we've inherited, that we've pushed around and pulled around and tried to make work, you know, that doesn't for me. Um, I'm, I don't want to be gay if that's, I have, it has no meaning to me. Homosexual is a medical term from two centuries ago. Uh, so I would like, so that looking, that's sort of looking forward that I would like to see is kind of developing a new kind of vocabulary of who, who we are inherently. Um, what happens in those, in, in those years as we become who we are and noticing that we're different. Um, well, there's some, there's a number of interesting things to sort of pick up on there. My God, we could probably have five more episodes of this. And here we're referring to Raymond Rigoglioso's book, Gay Men in the New Way Forward, and, and some of the conversations we had in uh, his five-month coaching program, uh, Gay Men of Wisdom. And that, that book looks at what Ray calls the 14 distinct uh, gay male gifts. And, you know, he makes it very clear in the preface of the book, he's speaking about gay men. And while many of these characteristics, these differences of gay men could could be seen, could be understood by a lesbian or a trans person to be made their own, that research would have to be done by and spoken from a lesbian or a trans person. And I like the phrase that my own, like use your difference to make a difference and something I haven't yet spoken to, uh, uh, some interesting, um, podcasts that I've listened to from, uh, the spiritual guru Ramdas, who is, has, has labeled himself as gay. doesn't talk about it very much. It's been there and he has a explanation of, of why that is, but in his discussion, um, Speaking to what you were saying here, Ken, going forward, this idea of labels are, are egocentric. And the kind of defensiveness and posturing and capitalism and ownership and greed that we see today is, is very much an overly inflated, overly expanded ego that is causing a lot of problems. And this fear of the other and the fear of the difference is so outside of the hegemonic patriarchal culture which is trying to control and trying to own and to limit expression this is this is the gift we bring as lgbtq people whether or not you choose to label or not it's still a useful distinction at this moment to say that we are here we are queer we exist you do have to notice us until at that time in the future when we might have this um, society where these labels might not apply or might not be useful. And it sort of brings me back to, um, Jeff, you mentioned uh, the, the latest uh, um, short um, series on Netflix by uh, the Amistad Malpin, uh, The New Tales of the City. I've got two episodes left to watch, and I there was a very interesting episode. One, one thing we didn't talk about is privilege, and I'm going to sort of make this the last little thing here. There's a scene at a dinner table where um, uh, I've forgotten the character's name, but he's the original character, uh, the gay guy from the original oh, series. Michael and uh, sorry? Michael Tolliver, and his nickname is Mouse. Michael, thank you. So Mouse has Mouse is 54 years old in in this new season, and his boyfriend is 28, and his boyfriend is a person of color, and Mouse is HIV positive, and um all of his numbers are great and 
uh, he's he's very afraid to go condomless with his partner. His partner started prep and there's a scene with a doctor and all of that. But they're at a dinner party with some really rich, everybody else is white and gay male. And one of the men at the table, he's wearing, it's almost like even his clothes look like he's, you know, fabulously rich. He's telling a story of they were at some bar somewhere and all these trannies came in. And Mouse's boyfriend says, that's not a word we use today anymore. We use, you know, a trans person. And the white privileged gay men get so upset, literally pounding the tables like you millennials don't know what we fought for. And it's based on the myth of Stonewall. It's a perfect expression in this particular scene of this belief that it all happened in one place. And if you weren't there, then you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And that's part of the problem that we're discussing in this show. So I don't know, have you got to that yet, Jeff? Or is that now like you can't wait to see it? <laughs> so I'm actually only two episodes in. Um, but in the book series, Armistead Maupin um, refers to those, um, or that that type of um, gay man as the A-gays, right? And I love that versus, you know, the, the, B, the B, C, and D gays or... <laughs> um, what have you, but, um, yeah. And it's interesting to see the continuity there, right? So the original, um, series that's being, um, written in, in the seventies and eighties, that's critiquing these, um, class distinctions and racial distinctions within the, the gay community and how that's, um, persisted to, um, to this day. And, you know, it, it, it seems like, um, in terms of what we've been talking about to maybe kind of bring things together, um, that we have this idea that, okay, Stonewall happened. And then we have this new idea of gay liberation and gay people are liberated and they have this new sense of pride and, visibility and that that has just been right carried forward um but that it seems like there's still a lot of work to do in terms of that personal personal internal liberation work right understanding like not um what what we aren't but who we are um and how that's also kind of shifted generationally and not just resting on the fact that, well, I was involved um, in the past. So therefore um, I just deserve a certain amount of respect, right? Or I struggled in, in, in the past. That means I don't necessarily need to um, understand what the issues are in the community at present. And it, it, it seems like, um, or the realization that I'm having from our conversation is that we really aren't at um, the end stages of a movement. We're not at the culmination of a movement. We're maybe in the middle. And that there's a lot of 
of work um, yet to be done. Yes, on the political and legal front, but also in terms of that internal um, piece that Ken is talking about that is also right, coming out of the ideology of Stonewall and gay liberation and things that are happening um, throughout the country and throughout the world in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, and so is it important? And does Stonewall 50 provide us with an opportunity to go back and think about what are the lessons and what are the wisdom of that, that moment that we can apply to right now? Yeah. So Ken, maybe to wrap before I go on to Jeff, as a gunkle, <laughs> you like the term of gay uncle, I, in that I know you, uh, I appreciate your humility and your understanding and your very memoiric observations in your, in your pieces on this day where you share uh, lives lost and often in your stories in your recounting, it's a very brief mention of perhaps the person or it's about who they were as a person and, and some very fond memory or some important moment or how they were involved with something. This, this eye to history and the lived experience, I think, gives you a really interesting and unique insight. And I mentioned that as a contrast to, you know, this fictionalized story, Tales of the City and the privilege there. So here today, this is an either or, or and or question. What would you tell your gay self in grade 10 coming out? Or if you were encountering somebody at 15 years old today who's questioning, what, what advice would you give them as their gay uncle, so to speak, their perhaps newly chosen family member? One of the questions that I've always asked, um, and it's kind of a weird one, but it comes down to what would I do if I loved you? And over and over, it's like I, corny is all hell, I suppose. But and we don't even we, we don't know about love, but it's the most essential piece of our lives. Um, nothing makes sense without it. And how, uh, how do we love, and how important is that? Um, I was down at my school for a 50th re <laughs> reunion, and we've got, you know, trans people in the sixth grade, and I'm thinking, you know, and, and part, of me is, it, part of me likes that. Part of me doesn't understand, but, you know, I'm pushing whatever. I'm going to let them be the way they want, finally. But... Underneath it all, okay, you have expectations of the world. But knowing yourself, who you are, and what you are, how do you, what, what do you have to offer the world? What is, so, what is your unique value that's going to make this a better place, regardless of what you have to go through to get to it? What, what's going to make a difference in your life? And how you live it without fighting over. I mean, you can fight for, you know, all the rights you want, but is that what you're going to leave? So that's really important. Um, 
to me. And a 10th grade person, mm, um, find a man you can take a men, f- find men that you trust and want to know and want to grow with. Uh, find a purpose, something that interests you and, 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 and pursue that. Look for help along the way. Is that ridiculous enough? That's, that's a spot. (laughs) That's lovely. You, you, you perfectly spoke to the, you know, the trending hashtag that's been around for a while. Love is love. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Love does not win automatically. No. Uh, No. And no one's life matters if it doesn't matter to you. Well, I like the expression, what do you have to offer the world, which is looking to the forward and looking to make a difference as opposed to, you know, what are you holding on to? What, how are you stuck in the past with a particular way of thinking or an ideology uh, that is limiting your growth and limiting your ability to accept other people for their difference, for how they are not like you? And that's really the essence of, of, of what we are talking about in this podcast and, and why we've lost it, why we've had to fight, why we've had to push back, why we've had to express ourselves, why we've had to fight for rights, why we are now finding ourselves courted by, you know, uh, big beer companies, big banks, uh, big insurance companies, clothing companies, and, you know, everybody, you know, capitalizing on the rainbow flag. And it is certainly another discussion. And, and Jeff, let's end this here with you, because I really liked how you said something along the lines of, you know, where are we? I think maybe we're maybe in the middle of this in the sense of our journey of our rights and freedoms, because, you know, everything is hills and valleys. And at least in the United States, we are seeing some major pushback and, and uh, you know, the religious right acting as if, as if, you know, they are being prejudiced against and, and straight pride. How fucking ridiculous is that? And we're seeing it in Canada with the rise of populism. And, and we now have more conservative uh, provincial leaders. And if we were to get a conservative prime minister in the fall election, the great fear is that they would have a consensus and how it works in Canada, that they could make changes at, at the level of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that could take the freedom to abortion off the table that could take away the rights that we've won and put into the charter for, for gays and rights and uh, LGBTQ people and such. And, you know, we are relatively fortunate in North America with the rights and the freedoms that we have. So final thoughts or visions or advice on where we're next or how we handle ourselves in the now. Okay, so as you're talking, um, and okay, maybe you can like condense and edit this. I want to read this quote from um, the Gay Liberation Front manifesto, but I'm like, I'm pulling it up. But as you're talking, I was like, oh, I have to to read this because I think it's um, really gonna gonna culminate um, or bring together a lot of what what we're talking about. Um, so I think in terms of where do we 
go from here, we have to first know where we've come from and what our history is. And that's why it's so important to not just rest on this narrative that we're being fed by the mainstream that Stonewall is the totality of everything. We need to look um, at things more complexly than that. Um, And recognizing that it's not just about rights or who we can love or sexuality, um, but that I think it's about using our unique differences to create social transformation, not just for LGBTQ people, um, but across the board in terms of a more um, comprehensive social justice movement, right? And in, in order to access and use those differences to do good, what do we need to do? We need to um, have that internal liberation, right? That um, the community really starts talking about on a broad level um, in the post-Stonewall period or beginning in the late um, 1960s, early 1970s. Um, And I want to read this quote from the Gay Liberation Front, a short-lived but influential um, gay organization that emerges out of the Stonewall uprising. And this is from their statement of purpose. And I think that they really capture at that moment a vision that we need to use our differences, our unique perspective to enact in the present. So they say, we are in total opposition to America's white racism, to poverty, hunger, the systematic destruction of our patrimony. We oppose the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, and we are in total opposition to wars of aggression and imperialism, whoever pursues them. We support the demands of Blacks, Chicanos, Orientals, dated term for Asian people, women, youth, senior citizens, and others demanding their full rights as human beings. We join in their struggle and we shall actively seek coalition to pursue these goals. And this was written in 1969. Amazing. And I'll get that link from you that I can put in the show notes. It's, a, it's, it's funny how that language is so powerful. Um, it like literally sort of gives me chills. Yeah, they were articulating a radical vision. Um, one of the Gay Liberation Front activists, um, Ellen Brady, who's actually the person that delivers the resolution at the East Coast Homophile Organization Conference that creates Christopher Street Liberation Day, um, she said, we don't want a piece of 
the pie of American society. We want to reconstruct the whole damn bakery. Mm -hmm. It's maybe not a direct comparison, but like people who will say, you know, there's no equality when some people do not have equality or however the expression goes, you know, we can't just have some people having equal rights. And I started to have a shift in my understanding of things a little while ago that what I am in quotation marks fighting for is an equality and an acceptance for everyone. Um, it might be coming from me and my own lived experience and, and things that are taken away from me. But if people who have these rights and privileges right now and don't think I deserve them, they need to understand how it's possible they could lose these rights and privileges that they think are inborn at possibly even some way genetic. Um, and you know, <laughs> why is it that they are born into this? I mean, it's, that's, that's social justice at the level of education, at the level of, you know, seeing how we understand socialism at seeing how we uh, understand what's good about capitalism, but what's problematic about capitalism. Uh, there's, there's a lot of possibility for LGBTQ people to be leaders in making the change for an overall better world for us to lead, for us to lead by example and to, you know, do more than just change hearts and minds, but to change the entire structure of how society functions um, and, and, and bridge out to the entire planet, I think. And as Ken pointed out, who is at the forefront of Stonewall? It's the street youth of color and it's the drag queens who right today we might refer to as transgender people. It's the people that are the most visible that are leading the way, that had to be out, that couldn't be in the closet, that then as the movement progresses, get pushed to the side because they're seen as being less respectable. But equal rights for some right, is not equal rights at all. And right, we need to be aware of that history and to have um, a movement that actually addresses the concerns of all people, not just the most privileged among us. That was powerful stuff. I did not know exactly where this episode was going to go. I had a, you know, a basic idea and further, you know, those of you listening, um, you know, I always prepare in advance about what's going to happen, but it's interesting to, it's more than interesting to me that the, the topics that we've covered, the layers that we've uncovered. And I think what I try and do in my thinking and my writing and my speaking is part of my own process is trying to understand more, trying to see what's blocking my line of sight, which is just a way of understanding that which is in front of me, trying to learn what might be my own past patterns or behaviors. And, I'm not just, and while that might sound very personal growth, that's also conditioning that may limit how we work to make change and progress in the world. So an open mind 
and an open heart to understanding and to recognize that what we believe may in fact be a construct that Stonewall and the, the relevance or the importance of Stonewall as a, as a center and a focal point is in fact a myth. It's part of our total history, but it's not necessarily the defining moment. And we've, we've perhaps decided rightly or wrongly to say sort of like, this is the anniversary of something that we could sort of find a way of identifying uh, and holding on to. And who knows in 10 or 20 years time, maybe, maybe that won't be celebrated as, as largely as it is now. And one final thought that just popped into my mind. I wonder how much of Stonewall 50 is actually a capitalist advantage point and hardly anything to do with LGBTQ liberation at all anymore. I was going to say that's something we, we really need to think about, um, you know, Darren, the point that you bring up, because one of my fears is, are we going to get to a point where it is corporations defining what it means to be LGBTQ and packaging that and selling it to us, right, with a nice rainbow bow on top, and that we're actually losing control of our own self-definition. And that's also, right, what the spirit of Stonewall and gay liberation is about, um, defining ourselves for ourselves, saying, right, you won't tell us who we are, we're going to tell you who we are, and if you don't like it, tough. We're going to be ourselves anyways. Yeah, this I think Stonewall will be a, a, a moment in time um, in terms of you don't have to go any further than Facebook to find out how much the outside structure, the database is controlling us. Um, doesn't have to be corporate America any further than that. Um, though anecdotally, the first uh, March on Washington was an eye-opener for the banking industry, watching how many you know, ATM, how much cash came out of those ATMs over that weekend, how many flights, including charter flights, were going into Washington that weekend. I mean, those banks watched that, yes, and that was a big change in the way they operated. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that is beneficial. But if they, you know, but going along with Facebook says, oh, how can we get more of their money? Um, is a different question to ask than how can we help these people develop? Um, think of the possibilities of that, um, you know, because there's all that outside. And really to, to come back and I'm, again, looking for who we are. Uh, and and to understand that and hold on to that and be and claim it and not only because if you don't like it lump it it's like no the who I am is meaningful and necessary. Uh, I I'm you know what I do in the world is is wonderful, and if you don't get that, fine, I'll move on. And I think every kid has to learn that, and we can help do that. Beautiful. Who I am is meaningful and necessary. Who we are. Yeah. And, and I'm working on it. You know, I'm still <laughs> working on it. That's what I love about you, Ken. 
So Ken, <laughs> Ken and Jeff, thank you. I mean, we could keep going on, but I'm going to like bring this to a close and I really appreciate the, that the two of you have made time for this today. And I'm sure we could probably arrange to do another round table on a similar or a different topic, but uh, you've both brought tremendous insight and helped build upon um, the different directions and, and, and the layers and, you know, can I really appreciate your insights into history and that you are, you're still here. You're still with us. You're still queer. And Jeff, the, the, the clarity with which, um, you see the, the, the patterning or the structure of, of history and that you're able to laser in right through, um, and that, the, that laser doesn't hit a final point. It just it dissects all of the layers and that's what you bring i think to to your work at least that i've been witnessing for the last while and i want to thank um ken specifically as our community elder because i couldn't study queer history unless people like you ken made it (laughs) yeah I, and I'm I'm glad to be of interest, even in in this in this time in this place. Uh, it's it's good to be me. Um, it's a good day to be me, and to and I just say thank you, both of you, um, Darren, for uh, encouraging me in 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 my work, and Jeff, whom I've just recently discovered to to see this in a in a more complex and uh, layered and um, uh, format, um, which is you. Um, It's wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Thank you so much again for being on the podcast. And as always, live out and live proud. So are you going to march or are you going to parade? <laughs> you know, I, I think I think this year uh, my partner and I are going to uh, watch the trans march uh, to support that. And then and then we're going to dance. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to flag. Right. You're going to flag. I'm going to flag. You're going <laughs> you, to fly the flames of your faggotry. <laughs> if if you if I must, <laughs> if that's what you see, go for it. <laughs> I don't know. You call it what you like. I'm just flagging. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you guys. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Bye now.